Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we spent some time diving deep into the secrets of the brain and language. What happens when bilingual people read the same sentence in different languages? What's going inside their brains? What happens when our brain sees one thing but hears another and gets confused? Along with building up an understanding of what poetry does to the brain. Learning to talk is one of the key signs of development in young children. And for those of us fortunate enough to speak more than one language, we've gone through this process time and time again. Now, sometimes it can get a bit easier learning your third or fourth language, but still, the process of learning a language is a difficult one. And researchers from Carnegie Mellon University have been investigating what's happening in the brain when you speak a different language. Now, often people have this moment of realization where they can like dream in a second or third language, um, not their native one. And that's sort of the sign of you know, fluency when you're thinking in that language. But if that's the case, is there actually any difference between thinking or speaking a different language on the brain? Is there some kind of fingerprint or different set of neural pathways that are opened up when you speak in, say, Portuguese or English? And that's some work being investigated by researchers from Carnegie Mellon University, who studied a group of bilingual Portuguese and English speakers to investigate this kind of phenomenon. Led by Marcel Just, they've been investigating whether or not there are different brain activation patterns when using English or Portuguese. So the question arises, when you speak or conduct an action, any action, different parts of the brain light up. And we can see this uh, when we have someone inside an fMRI machine, a functional magnetic resonance imaging machine, those big cylinders where you put someone inside and get a scan, a 3D scan of the brain. And that process can be used to understand what actually happens when someone thinks for a certain thing or undertakes a certain action. You can see which neurons light up, which brain activation pathways and regions are activated to process that thought. And that's generally what neuroscientists use to get a deeper understanding of how our brains work. When it comes to languages, the question being investigated by this team is that whether or not the different languages actually use different sets or areas of the brain. Do they light up in a different way? Do they behave differently? And to do this, they, they basically got them to read a series of sentences in both Portuguese and English. And they used 15 native Portuguese speakers uh, and eight bi- in bilingual in Portuguese and English. And from this, they actually built up what they would call a, a model a computational model of 42 concept level semantic features and six different markers of concept roles in a sentence. So what this means is they used about 60 different sentences and each of those sentences use a different construction. Uh, For example, some were based around people or places or concepts and they varied this up to see how the brain actually responded to these different things. and roughly, these could be grouped in four semantic categories. Uh, focuses on people, place, actions, and feelings. So different types of sentence construction, as well as different types of literal sentences as well. So now what they found upon doing this is that they could build up a relatively consistent pattern 
uh, of the brain activation pathways in both Portuguese and English. In fact, the model that they made was able to predict with about 67% accuracy sentences which were written in Portuguese by looking at the certain brain activation pathways that were lit up. And then they tested these against English and saw that actually there was a lot of similarity. In fact, pretty much the same areas of the brain were being lit up for both the Portuguese and the English sentence, despite the fact that there were you know, obviously different languages being spoken. So this is quite fascinating. For example, the sentence, O eleitore foi a protesto, in Portuguese, which is the voter went to the protest. Uh, when you look at the predicted image for both of those sentences in English and Portuguese, pretty much lined up consistently across the sample group of about 15 people. And that's fascinating because it shows that the scientists are able to understand which activation pathways were used for different types of sentences and language. And that this, at least between Portuguese and English, was consistent, which shows that the brain was using the same areas to process both sentences. And what this is really means is that you can sort of have an understanding of which parts of the brain are light up and effectively some kind of meta-language prediction capability simply based on the neural signals. And this works across different people as well as different languages, including people with one language, two languages, and speaking actually separate languages. Now, this means there's a lot more research that needs to be done. Uh, by Carnegie Mellon University is looking into it, uh, and they launched Brain Hub, an initiative that focuses on the different structures and activities in brains that give rise to different complicated behaviours. Uh, and a lot more research is going to be needed, because if we really want to get to a, a deep understanding of how our brain works, and not just one, but for all humans and across multiple languages, we need to have more studies like this. So this is some great work being done out of Carnegie Mellon University. Now, studying which parts of the brain light up across multiple languages is useful, but when we use language, one of the amazing things that we do as humans is construct amazing forms of expressive language with patterns that convey all kinds of meaning. And one of the ways we do that is poetry. And poetry is something that often has a lot of defined rules and structures, recognizable forms, and it uses these forms much in the same way as a painter does to create some beautiful imagery. Now, what's going on in the brain when we actually listen to poetry? Uh, is there some kind of part of our brain that recognizes these patterns and goes, ah, oh, that's good or that's bad? Do we have an automatic inbuilt filter to recognize poetry as good or bad or not? And this has been investigated in a recent published paper in the journal Frontiers in Psychology by Professor Guillaume Thierry from Bangor University, who investigated what actually happens in the brain when exposed to poetry. Now, to investigate this, Professor Thierry used singing harit, a traditional form of Welsh poetry, uh, which seems a bit of a strange choice, but it has a, at least a defined structure that people may or may not be familiar with. I mean, if you used haiku, the same principle would have applied, but people tend to be familiar with what haiku is. Same with iambic pentameter, for example. What they did was uh, they chose a group of study participants, all of whom were native Welsh speakers, so at least you know they had a background to it, but they didn't really know what this poetry form was. So it was a good sort of control point to start with. Then the participants were basically 
read different forms of poetry, uh, some which actually followed the, the rule sets of the Singen Hanid, and some which uh, just were basically pretty average, non-structurally following poems, jumbles of words that had some meaning but weren't actually following the same method or rhythm or structure of the Welsh poetry. And what they did when they were under, undertaking this, well, they basically were mapping their brain of the participants using uh, the event-related brain potential scan. And they studied the exact moments as the brain comprehended and listened to the poem. They also asked the participants to rate the poem as good or bad, depending on what they felt, whether it was aesthetically pleasing to hear uh, or whether or not they, you know, whether it sounded good or just sounded average. And what they found is that the actual participants were able to recognize the poems with a pattern uh, pretty clearly uh, and recognize those as being good, and which is fine. That's an experiment in psychology and taste in poetry. Structure is more pleasing than lack of structure to a certain group of people. That that's sort of makes more sense. It's orthodox. They were good sounding sentences. But basically what was interesting was that it showed that the brain itself was actually, for the fraction of a second after they heard the final word of the poetic construction, had an activation that was corresponding to a good. Basically, the brain was lighting up and saying, yes, that, that's a good pattern. On a subconscious level, before they'd even had a chance to make an aesthetic judgment on the poetry's content on its own, the brain was recognizing the structure, the poetic construct's structure, and going, yeah, that's a pattern worth noticing, as opposed to the random jumble of words. The other sentences that didn't have the structure didn't have anywhere near the same kind of pattern activation. This is some really interesting work being done, but it needs to be said that by all means does all poetry need to have structure and form. There are plenty of poetry forms that don't have that and actually reuse the fact that there isn't some type of repetitive pattern in there uh, to quite to great effect. The interesting part about this is that the brain actually can automatically recognize ah, that pattern, that sequence, much before we have the ability to actually make an aesthetic judgment on it. And that is very interesting. This is some great work being done out of the University of Bangor by Professor Guillaume There. One of the funniest types of videos on YouTube is the bad lip reading. They're immensely popular, and that's basically where they use a recognition algorithm to change the lyrics of something and detect what the person is singing or saying and produce often nonsensical and hilarious uh, interpretations of what was otherwise a famous scene or song. And that kind of concept is pretty funny, but it's actually getting to a very fundamental part about the way speech works. Speech is multimodal, which means that it's not just the audio sound that you hear that's important to understanding speech. There are a whole bunch of other cues that are very, very important to help us process speech. These include visual cues along with a bunch of others. And our brain is combining all these different signals that we receive and pulling them into one processed speech center in our brain. And a famous example of this is what's known as the McGurk effect. Now, the McGurk effect was discovered in the 1970s by two researchers, Harry McGurk and John McDonald. And they published a paper called Hearing Lips and Seeing Voices in 1976. And an example of this is what happens when people hear the sound of uh, bar, but have someone visually produce the sound ga. So basically splice over the video of somebody making the sound ga with their mouth, 
but orderly making bar. And what ends up happening is that the brain uh, goes on to produce da, a completely different sound. And in fact, our brain is doing this kind of trick all the time. We mishear effectively simply because uh, the we get the wrong sound. We have when you try and trick the brain by providing it the wrong cue, what ends up happening is that the brain muddles them together and can't process it correctly. Even though we're hearing the same thing, our brain overrides it and basically says, no, 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 that's something else. Just because the visual cue is basically acting as a, a deflection. The brain's trying to process the visual cue together with the audio cue and says, oh, these aren't making sense. That's not the audio sound. It's not the visual sound, so it's something else. And it's one of the ways that it's kind of like an optical illusion, but for the brain processing sound. And this can have a whole range of interesting impacts from witness testimony, uh, as well as understanding the differences in prevalence across languages. Some languages um, have a more pronounced effect than others. So Dutch, English, Spanish, and German and Italian listeners, they, they really rely on the visual cue along with the audio cue. So they can be quite easily thrown off when they don't match up. Whereas in Japanese, it's less noticeable. Um, so that's quite interesting as a concept for the brain. And some recent work done by Dr. Michael Burkham, from the, who's a professor of neurosurgery at Baylor College of Medicine, together with his colleagues John Magnotti, who's a research fellow at Baylor, basically built a computer model of the way the brain processes, specifically the McGurk effect, um, the combination of visual and audio patterns together uh, to produce uh, uh, an understanding of a sound. And why we want computers to be able to do this is for two reasons. The first is we need to understand how this works so we can understand the impact of the, that area of the brain. So we need to build a good computer model of it. But if you're going to build a computer model anyway, then it's actually useful uh, for computers to be able to recognize our speech. Everyone's had the problems where you have a, a voice to text recognition software and it gets everything completely wrong. By making that more multimodal, we can improve their performance. So there's a lot of advantages to studying this. And so they built a computer model of how this works. It's a multi-sensory uh, speech recognition algorithm. And it uses the principle of casual inference, which means it takes in the auditory as well as the visual signal. And then it also calculates whether or not there's a single or multiple talkers. And basically says, okay, Am I getting an overriding signal here for which reason? Is it because there's someone is trying to trick me or am I hearing multiple sounds and thus getting confused and sort of builds in what causes of interference could be there and thus sort of builds up the casual inference model that our brains are doing just automatically all the time. And that helps them get to a more accurate actual understanding of what the final speech pattern is. And they basically then ran big data tests on it, comparing it to other models that didn't use a casual inference type approach. And what they found is that their model performed much better and suggests that casual inference is a pretty important part of what our brain is doing to rule out or rule in different parts of the approach. And we're basically trying to work backwards with building a model or an algorithm to simulate our brain so we actually understand what is happening inside our brain. And we're getting a little bit closer understanding that. So now we have a model that does a little bit better at understanding how our brain works, in particular with trying to get to the right source of something like the McGurk effect and make sure and, and improve our understanding of how our brain overrides depending on different types of signals that are coming in. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. 
understanding the multimodal nature of listening with the McGurk effect, plus how our brain processes and listens to poetry, and what it does when it hears and speaks two languages. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.